You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Cloud, though, so you, you can save it later. Okay. Those lights behind me make my video look bad. Can you turn the lights behind me off? Do you know how? I don't know why my camera is doing badly, but it is. Yeah, that's better. Oh, except for, but we do need to shut the blind. That thing, which blind is it? I think it's that one. Yeah, I think it's that one. And the one beside. You know what Get out the beginning. Oh, it's that one, yeah. Oh, I should uh, let people in. Okay, you look good. All right. Okay. Better than the last one, I'll give you cookies. Anyway. This, is, this is the thanks I get. <laughs> well, everybody's here in person. Uh, yeah. Yeah, everybody just comes online when I'm here. Okay. Well, there are a lot of people online. <laughs> That's good. Hey, good to see everyone. I'm just going to introduce Marty because not everybody knows Marty. So, um, well, welcome our embodied friends and our cyber friends. Uh, we are going to carry on in our series um, on First and Second Kings, and I'm going to let this person in while I'm talking. Um, so many of you know uh, Marty Dolphin Smith. I've known Marty for. A long, 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 long time. Uh, Marty and I have taught together many times over the years, and one of the biggest thrills of this past year is that Marty has joined the staff at CA Church. Many of you, you know that. And she's involved in a lot of things, and at first she's like, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, yeah, I can help you out with this, or I can help you out with this, and now I think she's regretting <laughs> saying, I can help you out with this, because she just, pre- Brad got her preaching on the weekend, and now I got her teaching today, and she's like, and I have to do all these other things. And I'm like, hey, you wanted to join? So, um, so it's all good to have her with us. So I'm going to pray, and then what we'll do is we'll hit record, and we'll just go right into the class. Sound good? Or do you want to pray? And I've already started the record. You're just you start, gonna have to oh. clip it. Oh no, that's good. Well, then everybody in the cyber world knows. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me pray, and I'll okay. get started. Lord, thank you for your grace and for your goodness. Thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak your word into our hearts today. We lift up Marty. Would you speak through your servant? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the reasons I hit record early is because I often forget to hit record, and then I start it halfway through something. So. 
That's uh, not the best. Anyway, so yeah, it's great to be with you, and I'm excited to be speaking on this passage in First Kings 17 to 19. No better story than the Elijah story. So this is really great, and uh, so bear bear with me. I'm going to try and um, share slides, and and it's sometimes hard to teach and do tech, but hopefully. I can do both. So let me just start the share. And if you're at home, you can decide what size screen you want that shows me and what size screen you want that shows the slides. So that's your option. Okay, so First Kings 17 to 19. If you got my notes, I changed my title from Elijah to Yahweh is my God. Sorry, you got it unedited. So that's our title for this week. So last week in First Kings 16, um, the narrator had gone through a list of the kings, all the kings that were unfaithful in Israel, and they were fighting for power. So there was Basha, there was Elah, Zimri, and then Omri, and finally Ahab. And on the other hand, on the other side of the water, Judah, I guess it's not on this side, on the south, Judah had one king through this whole time. It was Asa, and he was a king who was considered good. He worshipped God. And so the final king that um, is in place is Ahab, king who's worse than all the other kings. He's taken a foreign queen, Jezebel, and he's serving Baal, and he's making Asherah poles. And maybe it's thought he even sacrificed his own children. And so things are getting worse, and there's a big struggle in Israel of who should be worshipped. And so Elijah shows up on the scene, um, and first king shifts from focusing on the kings to now focusing on the prophets and so elijah is, there's been other prophets but elijah is the main prophet in first kings and elijah is actually one of the most amazing prophets in the bible so not just in first kings but um this so elijah is he's a prophet but he's also a political activist and he is trying to restore uh, the worship of God in Israel. And that's, his name actually means Yahweh is my God. And so that's a really amazing thing that he got the name for the work that he had to do. And so even outside of 1 Kings, as I said, Elijah is seen as one of the key prophets in the Bible. And so in, in the book of Malachi, um, God speaks and he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So he's seen as the prophet among prophets who will show up before the day of the Lord. And that's why in the New Testament, John the Baptist is considered the successor to Elijah. And so in Luke 11, in Luke 1, 16 to 17, in Matthew 11, in Matthew 17, um, John the Baptist is mentioned as Elijah's successor. And he's one of the two people who show up at the transfiguration with Jesus. So it's Moses and Elijah. And, and again, it's signifying that he is one of the, the greatest. And he's mentioned at least three other times in the New Testament um, and alluded to as well. And as I said, Elijah is motivated to raise up the worship of the true God, Yahweh, and to stamp out the worship of Baal. And he's a prophet, as I said, and, and also he's a miracle worker. And so that's some of the amazingness of his story. 
And his motivation is to prove that Baal, and, and likely in this place it's Baal Hadad, who's the Syrian Baal, is not any more of a god than anyone else is. And so the whole section of, Eli- of 1 Kings 17 to 19 is about the subject of who is the real god and who should be worshipped. Now I think we live in a culture that is asking that asking that question is very uncomfortable, right? If you said, you know, you got together with your friends, like, what religion is the true religion? Um, I think you would get in trouble, right? (laughs) And so this question got Elijah in trouble, and it would get us in trouble as well. So why do you think in our culture it's so difficult to address this question? Who's the real God? What is the true religion? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? There's no absolutes anymore. Okay, so no absolutes. If you're online, you can write it in the chat, and David will speak it out. Any other thoughts? Truth is relative. Yeah. So what's, well, who's your God and who's my God? It's also offensive, right, to say that your God, my God is better than your God. Um, that's highly offensive in our culture. And so, again, I think we, we can... It sounds like arrogant. Sorry, it sounds like what? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds arrogant. Yeah. And so I think in that way, this text is very relevant for us because we live in a similar culture where there are many gods, many ways to God, or no gods. <laughs> and again, we're not supposed to say that our way is better than any other way. And so let's start by looking a little bit at the gods that are actually in play. And so I'm going to go back to sharing my screen. And I think I'm not going to do the whole picture because it's just too irritating. And so, oh, but then I can't switch slides. So this is Baal. And, you know, when you see the two A's together, and maybe in English you'd say Baal. But in Hebrew, there's actually uh, like a, a sound in the middle, or in, so that we say Baal, both A's are pronounced. So it does sound irritating to the English ear, I think. But, and you can, if you can see the picture, Baal Hadad in particular has a beard and he carries um, has something over his head, whatever that is. Those are some, there's other different Baals that they found in the ancient Near East, but this is the one that was worshipped in Syria. And Baal is uh, the Canaanite god of fertility and rain, or the thunderstorm. And Baal was considered to be a mighty warrior. And sometimes some groups thought he was the sun god as well, but he was responsible to protect livestock and crops. And he is considered having authority over the rain. He brings the rain to everything in the earth. He's sometimes called the rider of the clouds, almighty, and the lord of the earth. And again, he's similar to maybe the Babylonian god Marduk, but what what happened is Baal brought rains for part of the year, and part of their year there were no rains. So they had to explain what happened when, when there was, what happened when there was dry spells, what happened when the people starved or there was death or chaos. And so Another god was brought in to explain that, and we'll talk about that a bit later. So the second god that, um, that we've got in here is Asherah. And Asherah is a goddess, 
and she was the Canaanite mother goddess. And again, when you see her, she'll usually have breasts. She may have more breasts than just two. Um, and she was associated in Israel with sacred trees or poles. And she's sometimes known as the chief god Al's wife. Sometimes she's known as Baal Hadad's wife. And then even in Israel, they found inscriptions where she was called Yah where that say Yahweh and his wife Asherah. So that is interesting that, that an inscription has been found like that. And so sometimes she was seen as a mediator of Yahweh's blessings. So she helped out Yahweh. Then we have Yam, and there's no there's no pictures of Yam, but Yam is the god of the sea, and Yam is the enemy of Baal. They don't get along at all. They have a feud and they fight, and so again, when their battle their battles may look like when the waters get rough and their ocean is stirred up, that might be Baal and Yam fighting with each other. And he he um so finally we have Moat. And again, there's no pictures of Moat, but Moat is the god of death. And Moat also is the god of sterility. So so he has when they describe him they describe him like with big jaws and um he's the symbol of decay and everything that is bad and he sits in the pit in the underworld and he's also an enemy of all and so there's this thing in the ancient years they called it the the um cycle the baal cycle and so in the rainy season baal is free and he brings rain and then in the dry season, he's hiding from Moat because Moat is trying to kill him. And so that's how they explained why they didn't always have rain. Um, and he, in the spring again, Baal comes back to life. He's either revived or he leaves his hiding space. And then he's able to help people again. And it seems like in Israel that the average Israelite didn't think the story of Moses and the story of Yahweh was enough for them. They needed something more. They needed more assurance that, um, that things were going to work for them. And so, they, um, so that's why they brought in these other gods. So it wasn't usually, I'm only a Baal worshiper or I only worship Asherah. It was like, I'm going to add these things to Yahweh. Like Yahweh's good, but so are these gods. And so maybe it might be like, a modern um, polytheistic religion. So many people have experienced getting to know someone who's Hindu and you tell them about Jesus and they're like, oh, Jesus sounds good. Let me add that to my pantheon of gods, right? And so that would be similar to what we would have seen many of the Israelites practicing at that point. So they incorporated Ugaritic gods, Hittite gods, Assyrian gods um, to their understanding of God in the world. And from Elijah's perspective, these other gods are not gods. They're like Jeroboam's calves. They're not real. Um, and so that he's going out to prove to the Israelites they're worshiping something that is not real. He's not okay at all with Yahweh and Baal or Yahweh and Asherah. And he wants to force the issue with the people of Israel and challenge them on who they're going to be faithful to. So I want to sit back for a moment and, and go into a bit of a discussion with you guys. And so I want you to think about um, what, were those, what were those gods that the Israelites incorpor incorporating promising to them? What were, what were they afraid of and what were they promising? So think of it, they were living in a very harsh land. 
There is lots of problems with drought, with death. There's been research done that the early Israelites, there was a 40% death rate of infants. There were high infertility rates. And so these gods, you can imagine why Baal would be helpful, right? He's the god of fertility. He's the god of rain. He's going to help us when there's a drought. And the same with Asherah. And so again, they, they thought these gods would do for them what Yahweh couldn't do. So I want you to think about our culture. Here we are in the, in the postmodern West. What are the fears that we have in our culture? What are the things we're afraid of? And what are the gods that we might bring in alongside the God of, God of the Almighty God in order to help us so we don't feel so at risk? So I'm going to suggest one of the fears we have in the West is losing control. That's a big fear. So what are the things what are the things we do? What are the things we worship in order to stay safe other than God? And so I think one of the things that the pandemic may be exposed for all of us is some of the things we're afraid of. When we went into the grocery stores and we saw the shelves empty, what did we do and how did we respond? So I, I'm going to give you guys this question to discuss and I'm just going to put it back on the screen so you can see it. And if you're online, David will talk, will talk to you about it. But here's the question. What are our big enemies in the West? It's not infertility. It's not drought. We've got water pumps, right? But what and how might we participate in idolatry to ease our fears? Okay, so I'm here. If you can't answer that question, just come and talk to me and I will... Come into your group and help. Having enough money, some gambling. Missing out, fear of missing out. Fear of not having enough till the very end. Yeah. Well, and hoarding. Yeah. 
fear of others and what they think of us. So then you almost put make other people that your idols, what they think of you, or what you think they think of you, worrying about what people think about you. Worrying mm -hmm. is. Will people like me? Unmuted myself now. Okay, let's. Can I call you back in? What are some things that you think? What, what are some kinds of idolatry in the West that we participate in? Did your groups come up with anything? Money? Yeah. Like money makes us feel safe, doesn't it? Power? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I think loss of control probably is the biggest one. Even euthanasia, when you actually do studies on why people choose euthanasia, it's that fear of losing autonomy, fear of losing control. So again, keep that in mind for yourself, because we participate in the idolatry in our culture, even if we don't know it. And I think so it's important to think about those things like what are we afraid of and what do we do to mitigate that fear other than trusting God. So that's an easy, easy one. So let's get back to the story. So 
Again, the biblical worldview is that Yahweh is in control of life and death and fertility and rain. And Yahweh is in control and not us. And so we're going to look at this in this section, in a small scale in chapter 17, in a large scale in chapter 18. And so, again, I I want to just start reminding you. So Elijah is... um, Oh, just a sec. I moved a slide. So Elijah is from Tishba. They think that's about where it is. Sorry, it's really small there, but you can kind of get the sense of it's it's on the uh, east side of Israel. Um, they think that's where he's from. And so let's um, begin by reading the text. You know, and I think I don't even know where my record button is once I'm sharing. Okay, yeah, you're going to have to cut it. So, let's read. If you have your Bibles, pull them out, because we're going to read a large portion of the text. Okay. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and have directed the ravens. I have directed the ravens to supply you food with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. So I just want to stop for a second and point out that that's very common in the Hebrew text. God or someone will make a command, and then the narrator will write down that the person followed the command. So go to go so go to Kareth Ravine and then he went to Kareth Ravine so keep your eyes out for that so the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land then the word of the Lord came to him and said go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there I have directed a widow there to supply you with food so he went to Zarephath When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks, and he called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in the jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not. Oh, shoot, I'm not changing it for the sleep. And the jug and the. uh, Sorry, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. And for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He, He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? 
Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and uh, carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. Okay, so let's look at what's happening in chapter 17 and how it is starting to resolve the problem of who is God. So in verse 1, we can see that Elijah, um, that Elijah has um, announced that there's going to be no rain. Now that's a pretty audacious thing to do because who's in charge of the rain? Baal is in charge of the rain. And so right away, Elijah is is challenging Baal, right? You think you're, you guys, you Israelites think he's in charge of the rain? I'm going to stop it. And so he says there's going to be no rain except by my word. And uh, this is, yeah, so this is a pretty big deal. And he, he, he announces it to Ahab. And you can imagine Ahab was not very happy to hear this. Um, because he thinks that Baal is in charge. And um, then, he, then God speaks to Elijah, and he tells him to leave, go eastward into the Kareth Ravine. So again, he heads down to the ravine um, there, and God begins to provide for him. Now, I think Kareth is just slightly outside of the Israelite camp and so again Baal is so again we're finding that God is the God uh, or no sorry it's still in Israel but what we're finding is that God can provide for Elijah through creation so again that's a challenge to Baal Baal is supposed to be the one who provides through creation and now Yahweh is providing through creation so Yahweh interestingly enough sends ravens which were unclean animals to provide for Elijah and what we're seeing here now is that Elijah is beginning to be cast in the role of Moses. He's kind of a, a little Moses. And so like God provided for Moses in the wilderness, um, God is providing for Elijah. Okay. So when Elijah finally discovers that his water supply has disappeared, and he has to move on. And so another prophetic word comes to Elijah, and the Lord tells him to go to Sidon. And so Sidon is the land of the Assyrians, their enemies, and he goes to Zarephath. So you can see in the map, he's moved north. Um, he's right on the water there, and he's outside of the land of Israel. And so now we have um, Yahweh providing for Elijah in a foreign land. And interesting enough, that was the land of Baal-Hadad. And so here, God, Yahweh, leaves Israel and goes to Syria. And so again, there is this view in ancient Near East that gods were regional, that they had their little regions, but Yahweh is the God of the whole earth. And so he can go anywhere. And so he provides for Elijah through a foreign widow. And so this, this is, again, the heartland of Baal worship. And this widow, widow is not a worshiper of Yahweh, even though she, she does what God commands her, which is interesting. And so again, she's there, she's starving, there's a drought, she's about to cook and eat her last meal. And Elijah tells her to give him food. 
So she's ready to die, and now Elijah says, okay, don't be afraid, feed me first, and then I will provide, God will provide for you afterwards. And so it's interesting that she has faith in what Elijah says in his prophecy, and she uh, trusts God, and she gives Elijah the food, and then God provides for her. Um, and in some ways, she is like the prophet Elijah. She hears God's word, she believes it, and she obeys it. And here she is a foreign a foreigner, not even of the people of Israel. And so then we come to verse 17, and we see that the son of the woman becomes ill and dies. And so who's the God in charge of life and death? Moat, right? And so again, this is a challenge to moat. Um, so, so that we find that um, Yahweh is going to be stronger than moat. And there is a question in the Old Testament, in the Psalms particular, is God stronger than death? Is God stronger than moat? But in this story of Elijah, it, it's clear that God is stronger than death. And so, again, this woman, when the son dies, she is recognized, she believes that it's Elijah's fault, that Elijah's come in order to kill her son, and she blames the prophet. Um, and Elijah prays, and he calls on God, and he actually blames God as well. Like, God, why did you do this? And it was interesting, Is I was listening to Ian Proven's lecture on this, and he said, this is the problem we have in monotheism, that there's nobody else to blame <laughs> but God. In polytheism, you could blame Moat and even still worship Baal, but in monotheism, it's all in God's hands. And so, again, God, um, the question is answered. God doesn't have to submit to death, and so God is able to heal um, this boy. And uh, Elijah raises this child from the dead through God's power. So this is a this is um, reminiscent of some of the things Jesus did, isn't it? Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus um, raised people from the dead. And here we have Elijah doing miracles like Jesus did later on. Um, so the story again reminds us as people of God that we who have the spirit, we can act, we can step out in faith, we can trust God, and we can see God work through us. Um, that these miracles that Elijah did are miracles that God empowered him to do. That we don't have to sit back and feel helpless. Now Jesus referred to this story in the New Testament. And in Luke 4, 26, um, 24 to 26, he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there are many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And so again, she becomes, she becomes an important figure in the New Testament. This made the people that in Nazareth really angry at Jesus, because he was actually saying, hey, look, there's people outside the Jews who have faith, who God goes to and God saves. And so this story becomes a model that Jesus uses in his ministry. That's a powerful story. Okay, there's also an allusion of her to the book of he in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, when it goes to the people of faith, it talks about widows whose children come back to life, and they think that's it alluding to this woman's faith in Zarephath. So we can see that God, the, the God of Israel in small ways is greater than Baal and greater than Mot, that he has power that they don't have. 
he, that, and so we're now going to go into the major conflict, the big conflict in Israel, and look at that story. Um, so, so we get into chapter 18, and we see Elijah in conflict with Ahab and the pro prophets of Baal. And the, the prophetic movement in, the, in Israel was, again, a syncretistic movement. So most of the prophets would have some belief in God, Yahweh, but they also believed in other gods. And so in chapter 18, we see that there's 450 prophets of Baal, there's 400 prophets of Asherah, and then there are prophets that are faithful to Yahweh. And many of them by, up to this point have been killed by Jezebel. And we'll find out that Obadiah, uh, who's a servant of the Lord, um, has hidden a hundred prophets. So there's a hundred prophets for sure that we know who are faithful to Yahweh in the land of Israel. And then we've got Elijah. So up until this point, we've only known of random prophets, but now we find out there's actually lots of prophets all over Israel, um, and even some now who have been killed by Jezebel. So let's turn to um, chapter 18, and uh, nobody is going to be able to read that. So just read your own text. <laughs> I was imagining like a big screen, but it's just really small. Okay, let me just find it. Okay, so after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. So again, you hear that Hebrew form, go do this, and he goes and does that. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. When Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifteen in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so we will not have to kill any animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord Elijah? And he, yes, he replied, go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there's not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or a kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. If I go into hell, Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, who I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. Okay, so here we are. We see Elijah moving from Zarephath, moving down to Samaria. And he's moving because the word of the Lord came to him and told him what to do. And he's faithful and he does exactly what the Lord says. And it's interesting because the Lord's command comes with a promise. 
go to Israel and I will send rain. And this is a big deal after three years of drought that his re-entering into Samaria will make this change. God's not just going to provide for Elijah this time. He's going to provide for the whole region. And um, so, so why does God need to send Elijah back for this? Why can't he just like send rain? And so one of the thoughts at this point is there was there are many prophecies in the Old Testament and Solomon in 1 Kings 8:35 says this too that when the people sin the rain will stop when the people sin there will be a drought and so Elijah needs to go back because he needs to turn the hearts of the people away from the idols to the Lord in order for the rains to come they need to repent and follow Yahweh and so that's why he's going back so on his way back, he meets Obadiah. And Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord, interestingly. Um, so again, Hebrew uses a lot of wordplay uh, on names for meaning. And Obadiah's been busy r- risking his life to save the prophets. He's a really important person in Ahab's house, but he's judged as a faithful follower of the Lord. So the narrator says he has, been, he has feared the Lord. And that's what we know God thinks about Obadiah. God recognizes Obadiah as a faithful follower. And he's been taking all these risks during Jezebel's reign of terror. So Jezebel's been killing faith people faithful to Yahweh, and Obadiah's been living in fear. He's been like providing food. We don't even know how he could do that, provide enough food for a hundred people who are in hiding. But he's figured out a way to do that. Um, and so now he's out with Obadiah, he's out with Ahab looking for ways to save Ahab's animals, which is interesting. <laughs> Ahab's people are, are probably dying of thirst and starving, and he's trying to keep his animals alive. So, um, so Ahab and Obadiah split up, and interestingly enough, Elijah comes upon Obadiah and not on Ahab, because he's looking for Ahab, but he finds Obadiah. And so we're, this is a really important conversation that we need to listen into, um, because it's recorded here. And so the, the, the conversation begins by Obadiah recognizing and bowing down and respect and calling, um, calling Elijah Lord. And then in turn, Elijah turns back and, and calls Ahab Obadiah's Lord. That's uh, the same word. And so again, right there you can begin to see the tension. Who is Obadiah going to be faithful to? Is he going to be faithful to his Lord Yahweh or the, his Lord Ahab? And um, so we can see that this conversation with Elijah is causing a lot of stress for Obadiah. He feels like he's risked his life so much. How can he go back to Ahab and say, said that Elijah is coming? Because if Elijah doesn't show up, he knows he will die. And um, he can't believe that he's been asked to risk his life again. So I want us to stop on that point and to think for a moment. So here we have Obadiah, he's been faithful to Yahweh for years, he's risked his life, and now he's afraid to do what the Lord wants him to do again, and he's, he's really not wanting to do it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think often when God asks me to do something, I feel afraid. Can any of you guys relate to that? If God asks you to share your faith with someone at work, <laughs> or uh, 
do something that is going to make you look foolish, often we're hesitant to do that. And so I think we can relate to Obadiah here. And it's interesting because, again, often we have moments of faithfulness where we take risks, but then we encounter a new situation, and that's like, that's too scary for us. And so I want you to think through, think of a time where you've been torn between following the word of the Lord and pleasing your boss or pleasing your friends or your spouse. Just take a moment to think if that's ever happened to you. Okay, so if you can put up your hand, has that ever happened to you? Let's just see. Only, only four of us? Well, that's pretty amazing. You guys are amazing people of faith. So those of us who are like cowering, fearful people, in our small groups, let's share our story of what that was like. And then for those of you who are super faithful, you can just share your story of how you always have faith in what God commands you to do. So take five minutes just to share your stories of times where you found it challenging to obey what God has asked you to do because you're afraid of your people you care about, of your boss, of your friends. We have to share this story. And they, have you ever been in a situation like Obadiah? Okay, if I can call you guys back, I'm sure it's not like you did have some great stories. Um, and I hope you can at least slightly relate to Obadiah, though I'm sure none of our lives were at risk. Maybe, depends what country you're from. Maybe there's some Persians here and they know what it's like to have their uh, life at risk, but... Okay, I can't get people to stop talking. Okay, I'm just gonna start talking. So, so again, as Obadiah listens to Elijah's faith, Obadiah has faith and he goes back and tells uh, Ahab that Elijah's on his way, that Elijah is here. And so now is the great showdown between Ahab and Elijah and um, Ahab and Baal. So let's read that story. We're going to read from verses 16 to 45. So it's quite a long section. Um, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. 
So you can see in verse 20, I'm taking a pause there, that Ahab actually didn't do what Elijah said he should do. That's outside the normal pattern. When there's a command, there's a clear following of what happened, and Ahab went a bit sideways there. He didn't do everything he was supposed to do. But anyways, they get to Mount Carmel, and then Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given by them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as with their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bulls into pieces, bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal, don't let any get away. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant reported, 
A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So that's a pretty powerful story. We don't find many more powerful ones, I think, in the scriptures. I mean, obviously, there's the parting of the Red Sea. There are some amazing ones, but just the power of how God shows himself to be God is pretty amazing in that story. So let's just look at it in a little bit more detail. Uh, just a second, I'm going back to share. There we are. I am not sharing my... So again, we, we see Ahab and, um, and Elijah meeting on Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel um, was, again, near the border of Syria, near the place where Baal Hadad is, um, is uh, in charge. Um, and they begin with a little dispute about who's in charge. Who's caused the problem? And so the question, who is the troubler of Israel? And so Ahab thinks that it's Elijah that's causing the trouble, and Elijah thinks it's Ahab. And this term, troubler of Israel, is an interesting term because there's someone earlier who's been called this name. Does anyone know who was the troubler of Israel before these two? Achan. So do you know who Achan is? So Achan was in the time of Joshua, and Achan, they were told to burn up all the, the items from the, uh, from the Canaanites when they conquered them, and Achan kind of stored some stuff up for his family, and he kept some stuff to himself, and so everyone was getting sick, and they figured out that it was Achan who was causing the problem. He was called the troubler of Israel, and they ended up executing him. And so it's interesting that, um, again, thinking of what's happening here, Israel's in trouble, they're dying. Who's causing the trouble? Is it Elijah or is it Ahab? Um, so that, so another time this term, the trouble of Israel, it was used was, was between Saul and Jonathan, who, who, when, Saul, when Saul had that oath that nobody could eat, and then Jonathan ate, and then there were problems. Who caused the trouble? Was it Saul? Or was it Jonathan? Um, but Elijah declares it's, it's Ahab's fault for abandoning Yahweh and following the balls. And so in verse 19, they gather for the test. Again, they gather on Mount Carmel, which probably was a sacred place for Baal worship at that point. And they have this confrontation. And apparently Mount Carmel is a very lush place. I haven't been there. But when there's drought, Mount Carmel becomes very desolate. And so it would have been obvious as they gathered up here that there was something wrong at Mount Carmel. And then Elijah orders Ahab, he gives him his instructions, again, to summon the people. Um, and as I said, Elijah, Ahab obeys, but not exactly. He doesn't call the prophets of, it doesn't appear that the, Ash, the prophets of Asherah show up, um, and only the prophets of Baal show up. So in verse 21, he sets up the issue of how are they going to decide who is the real God? And he, he asks them this question, which I thought was really interesting. The translation um, smooths out this. But in verse 21, it says, how long will you waver? And the term that's used in Hebrew is limping. How long will you limp? And so it's this kind of idea like of people kind of going back and forth between their different gods. They're kind of limping. And then... 
between two different options and the word kind of is crutches like so who are you going to lean on who are you going to depend on if the lord is god follow him if baal is god follow him and this word limp is used when it talks about the the prophets of baal dancing it's the same word um so they he gives it and then in verse um 24 no just a sec where am i sorry Okay, so the people of Israel imagined that they could serve both, right? They could serve Baal and they could serve Yahweh. But, but Elijah is trying to make them make a choice. And so this is a compulsory question, I think, for all people of faith. Who are you going to serve? Which God are you going to serve? And the people at the time said nothing. They didn't answer the question. Like, you're not going to make me answer that question. I think none of us wants to answer that question. <laughs> Kirsten, who do you serve? Do you serve money or do you serve God? And uh, Jesus posed this question. Um, and he's, Jesus said that, yeah, you cannot serve money and God. And so that question is posed to each of us. Who do we serve? Do we serve the God of the universe or do we serve other gods, money, sex, power, whatever those gods are. Again, they, they won't answer the question. Um, but God, with, and then Elijah poses the question, well, let's get the gods to answer. Which god is real? And the one who, who answers, the one who responds with fire is real. And so Elijah begins to kind of set the stage again in verse 22 um, to verse 24. He, he talks about this feeling of being very alone. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but there's 450 prophets of Baal. But he's missing something, isn't he? He doesn't know about the 100 prophets that are hiding. And later on in chapter 19, we're going to find out there's 7,000 people who are still faithful to Yahweh in the land of Israel. But Elijah doesn't know about them. So he sets up the system. He gets them to choose the best, the best uh, bull. They have their identical altars. They set up everything. And then, um, and then he's ready to, for the contest. Um, so he gives them a choice again at this point. In verse 25, he says, call on the name of your God. Now, he doesn't say what their God's name is, and he gives them a choice to choose. Are they going to call on Yahweh in this battle, or are they going to call on Baal? And so the, the test begins, um, and the test is an ordeal by fire. Who, who, whichever God responds, by lighting up the altar, will be the God in charge. Now remember, Baal was the rain god, he was the thunder god, he was in control of lightning. So this should have been pretty easy for Baal to send a lightning bolt to start the fire on his altar. Um, but as we know, he did not do that. So, they, so the prophets of Baal, again, they call in the name of Baal for several hours and nothing happens. And then in verse 27, Elijah begins to taunt them, that, again, that their God is not real. And it's interesting because he uses, he uses the term when he says, he, he uses some terms. One term he, when it says, you might be, he might be busy, that's actually a euphemism for going to the bathroom. So their God might be in the toilet. <laughs> That's why he's not doing that. And maybe he's tired. Like he's really not very nice about this. <laughs> he's, he's quite rude in challenging them. Um, and so that's, that's interesting. Um, but anyways, um, okay, where am I on my slides? I've lost my way. Okay. So they're, so they're, pray, they're, 
they're cutting themselves. They're trying to get magic to work, the prophets of Baal. They're doing these ritualistic things to make Baal respond to them. And Baal doesn't respond. There's, and twice the, the narrator writes this down. In verse 26, it says there's no response and no answer. And in verse 29, there's no response, there's no answer, there's no attention. So Baal is not paying attention to the prophets of Baal who are doing all these things. But Yahweh is real. Yahweh is the real God, and Yahweh pays attention. Yahweh listens, and he answers. And so that's what Elijah is going to demonstrate. And so in, in verses 30 to 37, Elijah shows himself to be the true prophet. And so what he does first is he gets the people to participate. So you can imagine these two altars are set up. The prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and shouting. And then he calls the people of Israel and he says, hey, come over to my side and let me show you what I'm going to do. And so he sets the scene. He rebuilds the altar to Yahweh that had been there at Mount Carmel at one point. And he does that by getting 12 stones. The 12 stones are remembrance of the 12 tribes of Israel. So right away, he's kind of saying, hey, you guys, you split off from Judah. This is not a good thing. I'm bringing us all back together. I'm doing the 12 stones. Um, and then he gets four jars of water three times, which is how many jars of water? 12 jars of water, again, representing the wholeness of Israel. They put the water in. And he gets the people to gather the water, which is interesting because the water makes it harder, right? And that's kind of like the people. They make, <laughs> they make everything harder. Their sin complicates things, and he gets them to participate and really demonstrate in what they're doing, right? They're keeping Israel from experiencing the blessing of Yahweh. They're throwing water on the blessing that Yahweh would have them have. And... Elijah's behavior is really different than the prophets of Baal. He doesn't dance, he doesn't shout, he doesn't cut himself. He just simply prays. Um, and he demonstrates that the living God can't be manipulated by people. We can't manipulate God into doing what we want. We, we can only ask. So Elijah prays four things in his prayer. First, he, pray, he addresses God as the God of their ancestors. Again, Abraham... Isaac and Israel. He pulls in that he is the God of all Israel. He asks that the God of Israel will be known as the God of Israel and that Elijah, his servant, will, will be known as the one who is following God's commands. He calls on God to answer and then he prays that the Lord will make known to the people who is the real God and that their hearts will turn towards the real God. Now, again, remember at this point as he's praying this, the prophets of Baal are singing and dancing and shouting over there. And then, and then the fire from the Lord comes. It consumes the offering. It consumes the stones. It consumes the dirt. It licks up the water in the trench. And the altar is no more. It's demolished. There'll never be another sacrifice in that place. This is the final sacrifice there. And I can imagine that would have stopped the prophets of Baal <laughs> as they saw the fire come down. They probably would have been in shock and quite worried at this point. Um, and, that's an, and the people recognize what has happened, that the Lord, the true God, is answered, and they repent. The Lord is the true God. They answer the question that they refused to answer at the beginning. Uh, they answer it, and they say, the Lord is the true God. And 
So in response, and this is a grisly response, uh, Elijah takes the prophets of Baal down the mountain and he slaughters them all. He must have been pretty tired at the end of that. I don't know if other people participated with him, um, but this capital punishment of idolaters was demanded in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is a very sobering scene uh, for us and for them. But by ver verse 40, it's clear who is God and who is not God. And I think at this point, probably Elijah thought everything was resolved. We're in Israel. We've proved that Yahweh is God and things will be okay. And so, so again, I just want to take a stop in a moment. And I, I was reading this um, as I prepared for this. And this is from a commentary by John Woodhouse. He says, prayer is only powerful because the God who is really there is powerful and answers prayer. And I think that's important to remember. Prayer isn't magic. It's not an incantation. We can't pray to whoever we want to pray and expect answers. Prayer is only powerful because we are praying to the God who is there. And so again, as we consider our own prayers, uh, we can't force God to do what we want. We can't use magic names or bad magic incantations to get God to follow us. We only, God only answers if God chooses to answer. Um, so let's move on. In verse 41, Ahab reappears in the story, and he's been totally absent through this um, fight. None of Ahab's never been mentioned, and it's not even clear in verse 41 where, whether Ahab has joined with the people in worshiping the true God. But I think there's some clues in the text to show us that he has. First of all, it says that he he go that he is going up with. Um, Elijah, that which meant, means that he probably went down and witnessed uh, the killing of the prophets. Um, second, Elijah invites him to eat and drink, and that's kind of fellowship. So it seems like they're in a good place. Uh, let's have a meal. Um, when he says uh, that the sound of the rain is coming, Ahab seems to believe him. And then when he tells him to go back to Jezreel, Ahab does exactly what Elijah said he should do, which is very different than the time before. So it seems like Ahab's heart has turned, he's repented, and he is also worshiping the Lord. And then Elijah goes back up to Mount Carmel and he prays again. And he bows down in an awkward way seven times. And seven is the number of completion. But there's tension in the story. Is it going to rain? Is it going to work? <laughs> What's going to happen? And then this cloud appears that looks like a man's hand. And they all know good news is coming. The people have repented. The Lord is sending rain again. And so he sends Ahab back in his chariot to Jezreel to find shelter. And this is a 17-kilometer ride. Uh, where are we? Back here. A 17-kilometer ride back to Jezreel. And apparently Ahab's, I mean, apparently um, uh, Elijah's in such good shape, he runs faster than the horses and he gets back ahead of, <laughs> ahead of Ahab. And so I think, again, at this point, um, Elijah thinks things are going really well and things are going to work out for him. Now, this, this uh, prayer of um, Elijah is also recorded in the New Testament. And so if you read James 5, 16 to 18, James refers back to Elijah's prayers. And he says, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, 
So he's referring to chapter 17, verse 1. And then it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And so again, Elijah is a model of, of a person with faith and prayer. Um, and he's remembered um, in the New Testament for that. So let's, let's move on, and we're going to finish off. How many minutes? We have 15 minutes to finish chapter 19. So I don't think I'm going to read all of chapter 19, but I will read bits of it. So in verse, um, so, oh, where is mine? Okay, so we're going to read 19, 1 to, to 3 here. So now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets um, with a sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time to d tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. So when Jezebel, as you know, didn't show up, her prophets, her prophetesses, her uh, Asherah prophetesses didn't show up. And so when she hears the story from Ahab about what happened, she's outraged. Um, she, remember, she's the one who brought Baal worship to Israel. She's been the patron of these prophets. She's executed the prophets of the Lord. She's a very scary woman, Jezebel. And so when Ahab tells her everything, he tells her about Baal not responding. He tells her about the fire from heaven. He, she tell, he tells her about the execution of the prophets and the rains coming. But she doesn't believe. She doesn't have faith in the God of Israel. I wonder what would have happened if she would have responded to the miracles with faith. But she doesn't. And so instead, um, even though, even though it's pretty clear what happened. She digs her heels in and she wants to get um, Elijah. And so Ahab in this story is very passive and Jezebel is very active and she gets things done. And so I think at this point Elijah's really surprised. I think he thought things would go very differently. That once the rain came, once Baal was proven to be false, that everything would be fine. And he's really shocked to find out that now he's going that Jezebel's going to kill him. And so he runs for his life. And so let's read a little bit more. So he, he went, and I'm going to show you again, he went from Beersheba, he went to, from Jezreel to Beersheba. And Beersheba is in Judah, so he left the country. <laughs> and it's 100 kilometers, and apparently he ran it in one day, four marathons. He was in really good shape. So, but needless to say, when he gets there, he's really tired. Um, and so in verse 4 it says, He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So that sounds a little bit like Jonah, doesn't it? Do you remember Jonah lying under the bush and wanting to die? And in this scene, um, it seems like there's, that Elijah might be like Jonah, and he might be like Moses, and we don't know which way he's going to go. But God is really gracious to Elijah. God um, sees Elijah, he sees what he's done, he sees how stressed he is. And even though this is the first time Elijah's made a move when the word of the Lord did not come to him. Remember, he only moved when the Lord said, now he's, he's so afraid he just runs without God telling him where to go. But again, God is not harsh, God is gracious. And it says that God sends 
in your translation it'll say that God sent an angel but the word in Hebrew is messenger and so Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah that she's gonna kill him and then God sends a messenger to Elijah to take care of him and so that's a huge contrast um, between what Jezebel is like and what the Lord is like and so the the angel comes and ministers to Elijah says to him get up and eat he gives him some bread he gives him some water and then he lets him lie down again and sleep and the next morning the the messenger wakes him up and um, and tells him there's a big journey ahead and he strengthens him for and then he travels for 40 days and 40 nights and he goes to Mount Horeb down there near the Red Sea and another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai so can you think of someone who also went down to Mount up to Mount Sinai Moses right and so here's where Moses shows up in our story and so again this part of the story is very like Moses and so he goes up uh, so he goes up into a cave and spent the night and some people hypothesize that this was the cleft of the rock that Moses spent his time in but we don't know for sure but he's doing what Moses did he's going to this place and so in verse um, 10 or 9 now the word of the Lord does come to him and the word of the Lord is where what are you doing here Elijah now it's possible that that's a judgmental word like how the heck did you get to Mount Sinai without me telling you to go here it could also just be a gentle question like what do you want what do you need at this point why did you come here and so Moses replied so Moses Elijah replied in verse 10 I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty the Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me and so the Lord responds, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Again, do we remember a time where the Lord passed by? Again, Moses, right? And so then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper, which can also be translated as silence <laughs> a deep silence so everything you can imagine fire thunder earthquake and now it is silent and Elijah heard it he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave now interesting because Elijah had been asked to stand outside earlier and hadn't but now he finally comes out um, so he wasn't even able to obey the Lord um, when he had been told to go outside before and the voice again says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then what does Elijah say? Exactly the same thing he said before. <laughs> I've been zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've turned down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. Which is interesting, right? Elijah now has just experienced this amazing presence of God. Um, and he's still in that same place, right? I'm alone, and I'm being chased and you're not here with me and so I think that illustrates a challenge for a lot of us doesn't it when we feel abandoned by God when we feel at um, yeah vulnerable God may show up and we might even miss God and that's what happens to Elijah here he misses God and then um, things change so Elijah's role after this changes greatly um, 
And I, I think one thing I can say is I think, again, God is gracious. Um, but God responds um, to Elijah's um, to Elijah's basically refusal to see him and acknowledge him. And even Ian Proben here points out the important role of memory in the biblical spirituality. Elijah forgets. Elijah forgets what happened in Mount, on Mount Carmel. And Elijah forgets what happened when he was at the brook of Cherith and the ravens fed him. And he forgets what happened when the uh, the widow looked after him and where there was no food left and the oil did not run out and the flour did not run out. And he forgets all the miracles that the God of Israel has done and he gets very stuck um, in this place that I'm alone and there is no one to take care of me. I'm forgotten. He's forgotten to think theologically. He's forgotten to think about what's happened and, and he feels overwhelmed. Um, and so Elijah's life moves at this point from becoming uh, a miracle worker to almost becoming like a regular politician. It's interesting. And so God goes on <laughs> to say, um, in, so if we read in um, verse, starting in verse 15, the Lord says, go back the way you came from, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. And also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shapat from Abel Moholah, to succeed you as prophet. Then Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved seven thousand in Israel, all whose knees have bowed, but not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouth have not kissed him. And so it's interesting here, God points out to Elijah, I'm going to have victory. So I'm going to use Haziel from Damascus. I'm going to use a new king, Jehu, and I'm going to use Elijah. And they're going to establish uh, the, the worship of Yahweh again in the kingdom of Israel. And so Elijah, in many ways, is just one voice. He's one person. God isn't dependent on Elijah to do what he asked them to do. God isn't dependent on Elijah to save Israel. God will work um, despite Elijah's um, fear and his inability to see and remember. He's not crucial in God's plan. Um, and so that's, that's really interesting that Elijah's role then changes from being this prophet miracle worker to be a person who, um, who anoints other people to do the work of God. And some people, again, some commentators think this is a judgment on Elijah, and other people would be less just like, Elijah, you're tired. Let me get someone else to do the work. So, again, I don't know which it is, and obviously running you're running too much. But I think, again, God, obviously, Elijah is still respected. It's not like he loses all the wonderful things he's done, but he now moves into this other role. Um, so I, so I want in our closing moments, and again, at the very end, you'll see him meet Elijah, Elisha, and Elisha will become the next main prophet, and you'll learn about Elisha in the coming weeks. But we can see Elisha is so responsive to God, and Elisha burns all his farm equipment and just heads out, um, ready to follow Elijah and to do what God calls him to do. But I wanted to stop here at this moment, and in, in Romans eleven sixteen. 16, um, where are we? Did I not write it down? Okay. 
Maybe I didn't write it down. Do you have your Bible with you? Can you read that? Can you read it, Romans 11 to 16? Um, says Paul refers back to this situation with Elijah, and he refers back to Elijah feeling like he was the only one left. Um, so, David, if you could read that, that would be great. Romans 11, 16. 11, 1 to 6. Sorry, Romans 11, 1 to 6. Oh. Um, I asked him, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to, them, to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Baal. <laughs> so too, at the present time, there is a, re uh, a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So again, Paul appeals to the story, and he appeals to that story. I think Paul, he's in prison at this point. He's probably feeling pretty beleaguered. Maybe I'm the only one left. And he remembers. He, he theologically remembers this important moment where Elijah thought he was alone. And God had a whole bigger plan that Elijah couldn't see or know. And so here we are in the West. Uh, with the Christianity crumbling around us, the church is crumbling around us. People after COVID, you know, 60% of who attended church before is still attending church. Every year, you know, we get new stats that there's less and less followers of Jesus in Canada. And so I don't know how many, how many of you have ever maybe felt like Elijah? Like, who is left? Who is left to be faithful to God? Any, any of you ever wondered that? I've wondered that. I wondered what will it be like to be a Christian in Canada in 20 years? Will will there be anyone left? Will any of us still be faithful, or will we just find uh, the gods of our culture overtake us and draw us away from the Lord? And so I want to close um, and leave us with that, with just thinking about that. Um, we don't have any minutes left, but what? Maybe just at your table briefly, talk about um, what, in what way is God's promise of this 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal and Paul's reminder of it, how does that encourage you? Does that give you hope? What, what does it feel like to hear that and how does that challenge you? Just take a moment in your groups and then I'll close in prayer. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I think he means that for his church, too. He will never. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. To find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.